You are an entrepreneur, a professional, a speaker, or a coach. And although you've come a long way, it's time for you to take it to the next level. We've got you. This is the Author to Authority Podcast. We'll help you use authority and influencer marketing to build your business stronger and faster by publishing a book. You'll hear from guests that are thought leaders in sales, marketing, networking, communication, social media, promotion, and business leadership. Let's do it. This is the Author to Authority Podcast. And now your host, the extraordinary word ninja, Kim Thompson Pinder. Welcome to the Author to Authority podcast. And today we're going to do a topic that we have not really touched too much on on the Author to Authority podcast. And that is the experience. And if you're wondering what experience I'm talking about, well, you're going to have to tune into the episode and find out more. I want to welcome Michael Hinshaw to the show. He's the founder and president of Customer Experience Consultancy, M Corp CX, and recognized on over a dozen top global CX influencer lists. His new book, Experience Rules, the Experience Operating System, or XOS, which we're going to be talking about today, and Eight Keys to Enable It, and it's co-authored with Diane Majors and is slated for release in Q1 of this year, so we'll get an update about that. He's a teaching fellow at UC Berkeley's Lester Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Haas School of Business, and he has consulted for and advised executives at Get this list. Companies such as Intel, Microsoft, Biogen, Roche, Best Buy, and Lulamon. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, Kim. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. That's an impressive list of words to put your mouth around. <laughs> I guess when you've been doing this kind of thing as long as I have, <laughs> things tend to tend to accrue. So I'm going to ask you just, you know, the obvious, obvious question to to begin with. When, you know, when you're looking at sales, when you're looking at business, when you're looking at, you know, becoming successful, does the experience you provide make a difference? I mean, it sounds obvious. And the answer is resounding. Yes, it makes a difference on basically every possible metric that a business judges itself on better sales, more effective marketing, certainly on the back end retention, keeping more of your better customers longer, increasing the value of those customers. Customer lifetime value increases pretty radically with uh, with great customer experience because your customers tend to tell others more, tell their friends about you. They tend to spend more with you and they tend to stay longer. You know, when you were saying that, a thought occurred to me, you know, when your service is really bad, people share it. When your service is really good, people share it. If they're not sharing it, it's because it's blah and in the middle. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, there, there's a weird, you know, it's a it's a human thing, right? So even though it's weird, it, it is human, which made us be weird because of that. But, but people share negative experiences more than positive experiences. I think the ratio is something like seven to one. So if you have a negative experience, you're going to tell seven people. And different studies have different numbers, but let's just use seven as a placeholder. And and if you have a great experience, you might tell one person. And I think that that probably ties into, you know, that old uh, newspaper or maybe it's TV news headline, if it leads, it leads. 
So yes. there's something something about the way that we as people interact with the world that you know causes us to tend more towards focus on the negative than the positive. I wish I could change that. I can't, other than in my own small part of the world, <laughs> like just me. But when it comes to customer experience, <clears throat> the downside of a negative experience is so significant in in part because of that tendency of others to share negatives over positives. I couldn't agree more. The only area I've seen a slight difference in that is, you know, when you build a really good network of people who know, like, and trust you, and they've had good experiences with you, I find at least, you know, right now in the B2B sector, you know, when you build that kind of network of people and you give them a good experience, they do tend to talk about you. Now, maybe not every day to everybody, but, you know, the moment somebody mentions publishing, you know, my tribe, my people, you know, my group's going to say, oh, well, you've got to go to camp. So even though it, it doesn't spread the way negative does, I think we can't count out the effects of, of the positive or, oh. the, or the extreme positive either. No. I wouldn't say that I'd be counting it out because to your point, I mean, recommendations, referrals, and that's where, you know, Yelp has made its business just as example, right? Are other, are other people like me utilizing and being satisfied by this service or that restaurant or that might be, but that plays into every part of the business. It's, we tend, we tend to lean towards organizations that we have, you know, that social proof you're talking about before we got on camera that, that have that, there's some social proof, and that could be in the form of online reviews. But the most powerful, of course, is the one-to-one -one conversations we have with the people we care about. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to dive into a bit of your story because I'm a little bit fascinated here. I mean, you are have done things that most people can barely dream about, let alone do. So I want to hear more about your business story and, you know, how did you come about to being able to do all these things? I, I think that many people in the customer experience arena have somewhat circuitous routes there. It, it's really on the last few years that there have been organizations like the Customer Experience Professionals Association and others that are actually building up a body of knowledge and a curriculum and a way to actually teach people how to be customer experience experts. I fell into it kind of, and without going too far back, my background is in marketing. I have a master's degree in, in design. And I leveraged that into the marketing arena and built and then sold a relatively small, like a 35 person firm in 1990, late 1996, I believe. And we did a lot of work for private equity firms, investment banks, organizations like that. And one of those companies called me, private equity firm, and said, hey, we're thinking about doing something in this internet space. It sounds pretty interesting to us. Are you interested in, in running that business? And I was like, Sure, <laughs> why not? You know, and and of course, I'd done work around the web and was pretty familiar with the the potential of the internet, but didn't know where to focus a business. So, long story short, I decided to start a business in an industry I knew zero about, in a country I knew little about. So, based in San Francisco, we started grain trading business in Canada, and far <laughs> away. <laughs> no. <laughs> that different from you guys <laughs> <laughs> nicer <laughs> in general unless of course you make jokes about being american to the customs agents in calgary and they don't they don't like that at all <laughs> 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 you 
you know, I got pulled out of line yeah, once. See that. And that was it. <laughs> so, but in any case, so we built that business up to being the largest independent grain trader in Canada in less than three years. And and I ascribed that growth to what I had to do personally to figure out, I don't know anything about this market. I think there's a huge opportunity here, but where is it? And so I talked to, I and my my team, we talked to everyone who is part of the, the grain trading ecosystem, the farmers, the agronomists, the, the folks who's, you know, the input sellers, they call them you know, seeds, a fertilizer, the big conglomerates, ADM, Cargill, organizations like that, the buyers, companies like Sapporo, and and the brokers, the folks who are in the middle who are, you know, arbitraging, buying, selling all the stuff, truckers. So it's kind of looking at all of it. And we mapped out what we called touchpoint map at that point in time. And a touchpoint map essentially gave us a visual image of how each one of these segments, these constituencies, walked through their day-to-day business from how they started, how they started doing work and then where they wanted to end up, goals they're trying to accomplish. And what accelerants did they have along the way? And what barriers did they run into along the way? And building out those maps enabled us to find connection points between you know one group and another. Where's their pain? If there's common pain, we identify common pain across all these audiences and then developed you know internet-based solutions that helped us to eliminate those pain points, to reduce friction through the through the life cycle. As it turns out, that really is the foundational um approach to customer experience improvement, which is understanding where the pains in the market are, eliminating those pains. So uh, we sold the technology in 2002. I started MCorp CX about that same time. My first clients were Microsoft, AT&T, and GE. And we began the process of, of developing these touchpoint maps for large organizations to help them improve their experiences. And I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> wow, I love it. Love it. Love it. You know, there there was something that you touched on there that um, we're going to focus in on. We're going to come back. I have time for our ad break. But when we come back, I just want to focus in on one thing before we go into talking more about E-X-O-S. Oh, man, it is one of those days. <laughs> Audience, check out this free resource from RTI Publishing that is going to help you Write and publish a book that's going to turn readers into clients and help you scale your business. We'll be right back. Writing and publishing a book that converts readers into clients and scales your business is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Get my free checklist at bit.ly forward slash create and scale that will show you what you need to do to have your book become a well-converting lead generating tool. Welcome back. Michael, you were just sharing your story and there was something that you said in there. I just want to just just dive a little bit deeper on and caught my attention was when you were talking about the fact that you found the common pain points and then the way to solve those pain points. I'd love for you to just dive into that just a little bit deeper, because I think as you know, especially as solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, professionals, you know, we, I don't think we step back enough to really realize the pain points that our clients are experiencing. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just use an, an analogy from, from teaching. One of the things that I, I do when I, when I teach is working with ventures, right? So small groups of students, MBA students who are interested in starting something interesting and big. And 
<clears throat> and I also do some work with startups, more from a kind of a, a private consultative perspective as a more mentor advisor rather than as a client of MCorp CX. And, and working with smaller organizations, it's interesting to see you know, the, the linkages between customer experience broadly writ in, in any organization scale, like the Microsofts and the Intels, and a solopreneur or somebody who's part of a startup team with a new venture. And, and that's really, it's the identification of pain points in the market and understanding mm -hmm. of how you can use your services, your, your focus areas to actually remove those pain points. The most successful startups, I mean, I'll use Uber as a perfect example. I still remember standing in the rain in New York waiting for a cab to come that never did, and Boston and Dallas and right all those places. Uber eliminated that massive pain point and they satisfied the need for people to have part-time income, the drivers, they satisfied the need for people like me and like you to actually get a ride from point A to point B and to do so without having to stand out in the rain and wait for, you know, or try and flag down a cab on a someplace in New York. Um, but it's about understanding where you're adding value and the elimination of pain. And I use the word pain, it could be lowercase p, it doesn't have to be a uppercase p, but where there's pain in the market, there's opportunity. And one of the things that I've also seen is the the tendency of particularly smaller organizations or startups to begin the process based on their their beliefs. You know, that's one yes. of the reasons why in 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 business school a lot of the solutions are about ways to make things easier for students because they're students and they see the pain themselves. Right. So we start, we write books, we start businesses, we do things because we have our personal experience. But you're not just selling something to people who are exactly like you. So you really need to understand yeah. the broader audience. You need to go out and talk to people. You need to get, you know, belly to belly, have conversations, find out not only who you believe your customers are and what they think, but others who might be customers of yours. Is there a way to scale your solution across a broader audience? Or are there things you need to do to change your solution so that it can scale to a broader audience? Of course, you might have a perfect solution that can be absolutely niche focused and that's it. But you also have to have real clear understanding of how that market's going to change and shift over time because all of us, right? Our expectations are changing on a daily basis. You know, it's like we're expecting Amazon level service from anybody. How do you deliver mm -hmm. that? You need to understand what the expectations are before you can do it. You know, it's funny you talk about that because right now here in Nova Scotia, or at least the northeast part of Nova Scotia, we are in Snowmageddon. We have had winter's worth of snow in three days. We've got snow banks that are anywhere from eight to ten feet high. It took my husband three days to unbury our driveway. We got partial lane on our road so we can get out and emergency vehicles can get in. And we are in a local state of emergency right now. Wow. I managed to get out yesterday and get some food and some gas because the snowblower is, well, let's just put it this way, between our driveway and the neighbor's driveways, our old snowblower is just hanging on for dear life. <laughs> and hopefully the new one comes in tomorrow. But in all of this, just while I was waiting for you to come on, Michael, okay, I had ordered some things before the storm. Wasn't, you know, I know the storm. I'm not expecting any deliveries till next week. Yeah. Just before... I hear, hear a car out front of the house. I'm thinking, okay, who's out front of the house? It's Staples. They delivered my order. <laughs> what are you guys doing out today, man? <laughs> you should be home by a fire. <laughs> but, you know, 
Yeah, they exceeded your expectations, right? Fully expecting yeah. that there's no way they're going to be able to come out here, and nor should they. Well, it's the should they that concerns me because <laughs> technically we are on on a state of emergency, and no one's supposed to be out on the road. So I found that kind of interesting. But yeah. I commend their, you know, thinking that maybe I just might need that thing from Staples. I appreciate that. <laughs> but one other thing you you talked about there is the fact that especially in startups and you know smaller businesses and that sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees like we think that we understand because we have the experience like you said but many times we don't actually see what the real problems are i actually took last summer and i worked with one specific specialist who was helping me to develop out a new product mm -hmm. and so we went into and so man that was bad Toastmasters would be smacking my hand right now. <laughs> and we did a deep dive into my customers, my clients, you know, what were they looking for? What were their pain points? What they needed? I picked a certain client. We focused in on him. And then uh, this gentleman I was working with, a few of my clients were willing to have him interview them to talk about all the things that we had just talked about. And it was interesting, the things I got right. And I didn't get anything wrong, but what surprised me was what people found more important. I, yeah. I would have gauged other things more important. <laughs> the thing that, the one thing that they really gauged as important kind of surprised me. I, I hadn't thought about it. It was kind yeah. of like, okay. And and to be honest, it was actually the systems that we use at RTI Publishing for, for getting books out. We use project management software. I have a book project manager. We have a whole system for, you know, writing, editing, publishing, producing books, the whole thing from, you know, the first interaction until yeah. it's launched on Amazon. We have a whole system in place and we just plug the client into the system. And it just gets followed through step yep. by step by step. Now, it doesn't mean that everything runs perfectly and there aren't times when we have to slow down or stop or, you know, redesign the system for a specific customer and their needs. But that was the thing that really made them feel the best about working with me was the system that we had. That was not what I was expecting. <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, it's better than them saying the system it really doesn't work for me. <laughs> that is true. But it did surprise me. It did surprise me. We're going to shift gears, Michael, because I want to make sure that we give you time for two things. First of all, to talk about XOS and then some time at the end to talk about your new book coming out. So right. I'm going to let you loose for a few minutes to share about, you know, experience op operating system and how people can use it. The title of your book is The Eight Keys to Enable It. So I'm going to let you loose for a few minutes yeah. and then I'll ask you some questions based on what Great. you said. Beautiful. Well, those two subjects are pretty tightly linked, the experience operating system and the, the book, because that's really, that's the focus of the book. And one of the things, and again, regardless of organization size, the bigger the company, the more difficult it is to shift gears, of course, right? Because you have silos and divisions of groups. But even in, in small enterprises, you can have your marketing person, right? Say you have one marketing person, one salesperson, one operations person, and the leader of the business. Maybe you have a developer or two, right? It's freelancer, whatever. But each of those individuals is actually siloed to a certain degree. 
And in large organizations, you've got hundreds and hundreds of people, sometimes thousands, tens of thousands of people in each of those silos. <laughs> so if marketing isn't fully aligned with sales, if sales isn't fully aligned with service, you're going to find a situation where you have customers who have issues that may have been created by sales making promises or framing things in a way that don't 100% align with the way you actually do business, essentially setting expectations that the service can't meet. And the same thing happens in marketing. Marketing, you say all these wonderful things. And if sales can't deliver on the marketing promise and if service can't deliver on the sales promise, you've got disconnects. So the experience operating system is essentially recognizing that even though it's not simple, to become more customer centric, to essentially create that linkage across an organization is that it's actually pretty straightforward. And even a small organization, you have things that you're doing in different parts of the business. The operating system, the experience operating system specifically is about what are the kinds of questions you need to ask and what are the kinds of systems you need to have in place so that you are looking at your business and the experience of interacting with your business through the eyes of your customer. You know, it's that outside in, we're saying, hey, how does our how do our customers interact with us? What do they feel versus the more typical organizational posture, which is inside out? This is the process we built. This is how we go to market, right? <laughs> this is our product. And this is how we've always done it. Those organizations that can kind of flip that switch and ask themselves the questions around what do our customers feel? What do our customers need? What do they expect from us that maybe we're not giving them? Is our brand promise aligned to the experience that we deliver? If we promise, you know, a personal relevant experience and they don't get that when they interact with us, there's going to be, there's going to be issues. So at its heart, the experience operating system is about the eight keys that include strategies like where, where are you going? So you understand from a strategic perspective how your experience needs to line up to your brand and, of course, how your brand needs to line up to your, your business strategy. You need to have a framework in place that helps you align your people. We call it alignment and accountability. So your people need to know where they're going, where the others around them are going, and there needs to be accountability to make sure that everyone's working together uh, with clarity. You need to understand your customers. What do you do to yeah. actually understand, right? It can be as simple as going out and right having having someone you're working with have one-on-one -on -one conversations. I can tell you some really interesting things. Design and innovation. How do you design great experiences? How do you create products and services that actually are unique in the market and are differentiated and are relevant to your, your core customer base? Measurement metrics. How do you measure all this stuff? What systems do you have to make sure that the numbers are going up, not down? That you're measuring the right things in the right ways, and then of course you know processes, technology, you know, those need to be enabled across any organization. And and last and not least, you have culture. What is the culture of the organization? Do we have an ethos of serving our customer first, or do we have an ethos of we're going to make money no matter what, and if we have to sell anything to anyone, we're going to do it? It's a common thing in large organizations where the executive suite is saying. It's really important to us to be customer centric because you recognize that, you know, value flows from our customers. And then the sales guys are giving a different message, which is, I don't care what you sell, you hit this number. <laughs> and if you don't hit this number, like, there's going to be trouble. So you need to align, align, that's the back to the alignment piece. If the salespeople recognize that their, their job, a big part of their job is in addition to selling, of course, 
but also to make sure that they're selling their customers what they need and what they expect so that when they become mm -hmm. customers, they'll stay. Because if you sell on a false promise, if you your expectations are most customers are just going to bounce, right? One time in, boom, I'm out. And the value comes when you keep customers longer. Yeah. Well, I've heard it said that it is financially actually cheaper to keep a customer and sell them more than it is to get a new customer. It's, I think the number is five to seven X. Uh, you know, it costs five to seven times more to get a new customer than to keep an existing customer. But the, yeah. the fascinating part of that is that most organizations still tend to focus more more budget, more energy, more time on act, on marketing and sales than they do on retention, even though that's where the biggest value is. So, yeah, it, it's funny some of the things you said there because you know, you know, you've seen advertisements about you know for stores that are supposed to be people centric and friendly and and this and you walk in and you know the customer service is anything but or you know you're supposed to be able to get customer service and yet you've got to jump through hoops just to be able to talk to somebody about a problem you may be having you know to me those are easy to fix things but like you said sometimes there's this huge disconnect between the top and the bottom yeah. but even sometimes at the top what i've seen is you know forward facing or you know what people see from the leadership is oh we want to be people centric you know the customer comes first <laughs> and yet when you hear what they're passing down to the managers and then the managers are passing down to everybody else it's anything but put the yeah put the customer first you know, it's that, it's that disconnect between the vision, right? And actually leaning into and leading by example, because you can, you can put a vision in place. You can say, and many companies do, we are customer centric, but they don't walk the walk. They don't talk the talk. They don't deliver on that promise. And when that happens, you know, again, human beings, right? We just say, you know what? I'm just going to do what I've always been doing because they don't want me to do, they don't really want me to do anything different. Yeah. And the thing is, today, there is so much competition. There was a time when you could kind of behave like that and people had to put up and shut up because they didn't have any other choice. Yeah. Now, you have choices. And if you don't like how one company does it, well, guess what? There's a whole lot more out there. You know, yeah. back to talking about the taxis and how you'd call for a taxi and they never came. You know, Uber disrupted that, especially with the app, because you can see exactly where yeah. the driver is. You know if the driver's coming for you or not. You know, whereas with a taxi, you you call and you hope and you pray somebody shows up. I mean, I had experience in December. I was flying out in the middle of the night. My husband was in the middle of exams. So instead of him getting up in the middle of the night to drive me to the airport, yeah to fly out for business, I said to him, listen, you stay in bed. I'll just take a taxi. No big deal. You know, it's 20 minutes away. No big deal. Take a taxi. So I had called the taxi company. I was leaving on very early Tuesday morning. I had called on the weekend. I had booked it. I called on the Monday about five hours before. No, well, a little bit more. Let's just say yeah. seven, eight hours before. This is Yeah. Right? I confirmed with them the time, everything. Three o'clock in the morning comes, I'm standing there and nobody's oh coming God. to get me. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I don't want to wake up my husband because we only have one car. So I couldn't even go drive and park the car there. So I thought, well, there's this other one that's supposed to be 24 7. I'll call them. And they said they could get to me in time and get me to the airport in time to catch my flight. Perfect. 
So I, we had to take a taxi the other day because we only have one vehicle and we had to get our car fixed. And they, uh, the taxi driver, because we're a very small community, yeah. it's not a huge town, right? Not a big city. She was the one who was supposed to pick us up. So we kind of got talking to her and she's like, yeah, I know. I remember that. She says, I was really annoyed because they gave me the wrong date. They, The girl at dispatch, even though you had told her Tuesday morning at 3 a.m., <laughs> thought you meant Wednesday morning at 3 a.m. Yeah, it didn't actually take you at your word. <laughs> well, apparently this is a young girl and she got mixed up on the time, on how time works. Like, Because when I said 3 o'clock in the morning, I think she kind of meant like... Tuesday, but that would have put it into Wednesday type thing. And like, right. I'm like, okay. So, lady apologized to me. She was very sincerely, you know, she's like, I'm so sorry. She says, I, you know, I, and then I called, right? And they're, they're like, ooh. And they kind of fluffed it off. And I thought, yeah, I'm probably not going to use you again. But when you live in a small town and there's only one or two taxi companies, eventually you're going to use them again. But it was nice yeah. that she apologized. <laughs> Okay, we got about five minutes left, Michael. So I do want to get to your book. Now, you've talked a little bit about your book and what it's about because it's what you yeah. teach and train on. But I'm going to ask you the question that I ask every single author that comes on the show. So are you ready, Michael? I'll let you know in just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is this. What was the good, the bad, and the ugly of writing, editing, and publishing the book? Well, I'm not, not going to name names on this one. This is my second book. Uh, my first book I wrote with a co-author. I wrote this book with a co-author also with Diane Majors. And the, the author and publishing experience 10 years ago was actually fantastic. We ended up publishing through a very small business strategy press vanity back then. My, and I did that because my aunt is an author. She's written something like 120 books. And... Wow. Very prolific, very smart. <laughs> That's how she makes a living. And she is telling me that it's changed. When she was first writing, she'd be receiving, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollar advances. The publisher would pay for her travel. They'd book all of the, you know, bookstore and library and school visits. They'd get her from point A to point B, send her cars, all that stuff. She and now she's like, you know what? You don't get anything from publisher. And so the second this time came around and I had an opportunity to publish with a traditional publisher, but the economics of it didn't work at all. And, uh, and, and the ownership, right? The publisher ended up owning several concepts and things that I didn't want to, that Diane and I didn't want to let go. So we went with a smaller, smaller press and highly recommended by somebody that I, I know well and, and trust. And, and the process was just really has, has been difficult. So I'll probably say that the good of it is, I think I had six editors, different parts of the process. The good of it is that our development editor was phenomenal. They understood what we're trying to accomplish. They helped us really move things along. And then other parts of the editorial process were really painful. Like, you know, things that didn't seem important to us. Like, for instance, the way citations were used. You know, all the business books that I've used have citations done in a certain way. And they insisted that they be done in a different way that was much more difficult, much less intuitive for a reader. So it's that, and actually it's interesting, it's the conversation across the organization that was really problematic. Like you have a process for doing this. This organization has a process, but the process is so locked in different stages that they don't know mm -hmm. what the last person in a process did 
or what the next person in the process is going to do. So wow. I'd say that the, the, the bad and the ugly probably coalesced in that lack of communication across the organization mm-hmm. around what authors can expect. We're publishing on time. Book looks great. We had to do a lot of pushing and pulling to get it there. But even though we're happy with the process, it's, it's critically important, exactly as you said earlier, that you have a system that helps kind of, you know, bring authors along yeah. through it. And I think that all good publishers do that. Well, I think one of the things that makes us different is, is I have a specific book project manager and yeah. her job is to ensure that all the communication, first of all, she's involved in all the communication. So she knows everything that's going on with every single book. And she's the one with, that works with all the different departments to ensure that the work is being done. It's being done properly. It's being done on time. So she's the yeah. central hub for all of the books to ensure that things like that don't happen. Yeah. You've got a project manager who's in charge of the project. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. Michael, I've enjoyed this conversation today. If two things, first of all, one final thought from you. And then if people have enjoyed this conversation and they want to connect with you more, how can they do that? I think so. The the final thought, and other than saying thank you so much for for inviting me on your on your show, I really enjoyed our conversation. It's no matter what business you're in, listen to your customers. Talk yes. to them, listen to them, and take action on what you hear. It's really easy to dis- easy to dismiss a handful of customers whose perspectives don't align with yours. Um, I'd say keep an open mind and uh, and uh, company uh, M Corp CX. Uh, we're at mcorp.cx. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, Michael Hinshaw, and always enjoy chatting with uh, anybody about customer experience. It's a, a passion of mine, so I look forward to it. Thank you, Michael. It's been a joy and a pleasure having you on the show. Audience, I would love to direct you to the next video that you can watch, which is episode 471. So you're going to be scanning back about 10 episodes so to Jeff Brown's Why Your Competitors Are Winning Your Customers. If you're on YouTube, you know the routine. There is a thumbnail here somewhere on the screen. If you're listening on your favorite podcast app, then again, you're just going to scan back just that little bit to find the ep. I just want to encourage you, no matter what, put your customers And sometimes you may feel like it's costing you a lot to put your customers first, but I can guarantee you that in the end, the benefits will pay off. Have a great day, audience, and we will see you on the very next episode. Bye now. You've been listening to the Author to Authority podcast. The extraordinary word ninja, Tim Thompson Pinder, has helped over 200 entrepreneurs, professionals, speakers, and coaches write and publish their books that have become incredible marketing tools for their business. And many of those have gone on to become Amazon best-selling authors and have used their books to land high-level clients and get on big stages. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at www.author2authoritypodcast.com. See you next time.